Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to reread part of Psalm 80, 80, 81, right? 81, Matt? 81. Um, this is verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth, out your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. You guys know my buzzword. You know I'm uh, almost perpetually excited. Uh, um, I was not excited this week. I, I am not excited for this message today. It was not fun preparing a message on repentance and our dire need of repentance in the American church. It's a lot of fun to prep a message on Jesus as healer. It's a lot of fun to prep a message on Jesus as sanctifier. It's, it's a blast prepping a message on Jesus walking on the waters and multiplying loaves and fish. Those messages are enjoyable and exciting to study. It is not exciting to study our broken heart and our desperate need for repentance. But it's where the holiness of God must bring us to. Uh, if you were here last week, if you caught last week's message, the Alliance as a national family is doing 40 days of prayer to begin this year. Um, if you've signed up for the emails, which hopefully you have, every week at the start of the week you receive an email with the prayer topics for every day that week. And then every week has a theme. And last week it began with holiness. Um, this week it's repentance, which as we'll see must be the the only conclusion to the holiness of God in terms of our own lives and how we respond to the holiness of God. So before we dive in, please join me in prayer. Oh Lord, forgive us. It's, it's that enormous and it's that simple. Please forgive us. Even this morning, as we're coming here and, and gathering around this country, Lord, forgive me if there's anything of myself in this message. I mean, Lord, please, please forgive me if there's anything of me in this and forgive any pastors who are guilty of the same. Forgive us when we gather to worship to go through the motions because we think that's what you do on a Sunday. Forgive us for how we come before you. Like the words in the song this morning, we so easily and frequently give our hearts to less. Forgive us. As we open your word, Lord, 
forgive our own preconceived notions and our own desires that we bring to your word. May this be a time where we don't, we don't come away with what we want to hear, but we come away with what your word says. Get rid of me up here. I, I feel so inadequate to share your words. Last week, when we looked at the holiness of who you are and the voice of the seraphim that caused the foundations to shake and tremble and they don't even dare look on your face, my voice has never caused anything to shake and tremble. Let this time be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, fall on this body in a new and fresh way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we looked at the holiness of God and that God is perfect holiness. Holy, holy, holy is what the seraphim cry out. And Chip Ingram, uh, author, pastor, speaker, he asks a great question. He said, how should God's holiness, though ultimately incomprehensible, impact your life and mine? Because that's the logical question. If God is perfect holiness, how should it impact our lives? My life does not make any change to God's holiness. It doesn't matter how good I am, how bad I am. I cannot change God's holiness. I cannot impact God's holiness. But make no mistake, God's holiness ought to impact my life in every way, shape, and form. And it ought to impact your life in every way, shape, and form. So the question then, if God is perfect holiness... What impact ought that to have on the life of the believer? What is our relationship to the holiness of God? And as with everything, our first inclination must be, well, what does God's Word say about this? This, this morning, we're pretty much going to be in the back 10% of your Bible. If you're using a physical book, we're going to be in Revelation, we're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're going to be in Ephesians. Uh, if you want to turn to just one place so you're not worried about flipping back and forth, I, I would turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But I want to read from 1 Peter 1. And the screen says verses 14 and 16, but we're actually going to, I'm going to read verse 13 as well. When you consider what is our response to the holiness of God, how should God's holiness impact my life as a believer? Listen to 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... I love that phrase, preparing your minds for action, because I think this is something that the church, the American, the collective church, the church in Mansfield, I think this is something that believers have so tragically gotten wrong. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, we have listened to the enemy who has lied to us and told us that action is reserved for a select few. Well, action of your faith, your faith lived out in action, that's reserved for the Billy Grahams. That's reserved for the missionaries who go overseas. Those are the people whose lives are called to action, not you. You're called to sit there and listen and just absorb. No, we are all called to action. And this letter opens 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Listen to this. How are we to respond to the holiness of God? But as He who called you is holy, you also 
Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I don't think the Bible is that complex. I think God was very generous and kind in how straightforward He presented His Word. You can't argue with that. There's no wiggling around that. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I, I, I literally can't think of a way to make that sentence more linguistically simple or straightforward. There's no wiggle room in that. It doesn't say, you be holy in most of your conduct, and then we have to debate, well, what's most? You be holy in the majority of your conduct. Okay, well, what's majority? You be holy in your conduct towards believers, but not towards unbelievers. Okay, so what's the difference? No, it says, you be holy in all of your conduct. Since God who called you is holy. That is the only appropriate and acceptable response to the holiness of God is a life of holiness. And that's a huge standard. That's, that's a fantastically, almost incomprehensible, I mean incomprehensible really. Try and wrap your mind around the perfect holiness of God. I know I can't. I can't wrap my mind around the infinite character of God. He has enabled us to understand it to degrees and measures. But when you try and really think about the scope of an infinite God who is infinitely perfect... I mean, He is the literal embodiment of holiness that is beyond our sinful mind to fully grasp and comprehend. But when we think of a standard, why would we settle for anything less? I say this to, well, two of our elders haven't. Oh, they've, they've sat in on some meetings, so they may have heard me say it. But Tim and Bruce, you guys are going to hear me say, and the elders who served last year, they know this. I say regularly, I don't believe in small goals. I don't believe Mike's shaking his head. He's like, yeah, he didn't tell me that when I signed up. I don't believe in low standards. There's no point to it. I mean, if I wake up and my goal for, okay, Sam, you're going you're gonna to preach a sermon. What's your standard? Uh, you know what? Just don't curse out somebody in the audience. Well, that's easy. Shoot. Anybody could do that. What's the point of having a standard that's low? What's the point of setting a goal for yourself that's six inches in front of you? It's meaningless. It's weak. So a standard of holiness, be holy in all of your conduct, that is the only appropriate response to the holiness of God, and it must be the burden on our lives. We must, as individual believers and followers of Christ, set a standard in our lives that is holiness in all of our conduct. Why? Because that is what God's Word says. Anything less is not the holiness of God. And part of this, part of understanding this, Sam, I thought the topic was repentance. It's at the top of the screen. Yes, we're getting there. But you have to understand where God is and you have to understand where we are so that we can look at the process of how we get from here to there. And make no mistake, I'm not going to spend time talking about this later, but I want to set the groundwork now. God is perfect holiness. We are not. We have been forgiven our sins. We have been cleansed. We are counted righteous. Okay? It says, it says you are free from the bondage of sin. Jesus died. He paid the penalty. Like we sang, we are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. But until heaven, until perfect glorification, we will not be free from the presence of sin. I have been freed from the penalty of sin. I have been freed from the power of sin. But until heaven, I will not be freed from the presence of sin. Scripture says, if anyone thinks he is without sin, he is a liar and the truth has nothing to do with him. 
So when we talk about sin, understand, I am not talking about the penalty. I'm not talking about hell. I'm not talking about the power of sin. I'm talking about the presence of sin. When we consider sin as a reality in our lives, in contrast with the holiness of God. What did we look at last week? When we looked at the holiness of God, we looked at Isaiah. How did Isaiah respond to the holiness of God? He fell over and he groaned. It said a deep guttural groan, woe is me. He was aware of his own unholiness. We looked at John in Revelation, aware of his own unholiness when confronted with the holiness of God. We looked at Peter when confronted with the holiness of Jesus, aware of his own unholiness. We looked at Job when confronted with the holiness of God, aware of his own unholiness. When we consider the holiness of God, we must equally be aware of our own unholiness in contrast to who God is. And in order to have an appropriate picture of that, we need to understand what sin is. Because I really don't think that we understand sin appropriately. I think we've created a sliding scale of sin where there's some sin that we know we're, we're not okay with, but there's some sin that we'll tolerate. We're, we're okay with this sin. And before we shake our heads, before we say, no, that's not true, consider this. And when I said this was not an exciting message to prepare, this is not going to be an exciting, fun message to listen to. But we are cowards if we refuse to engage with this topic just because it's not fun and easy. So when you consider the topic of sin, when you consider the idea of sin that we will not tolerate, but sin that we're kind of okay with, think about it. If you were your part of this church, you were part of this church body, if the elders, if the leadership, the spiritual authority of this church came out and said, we're going to start doing same-sex marriages, we're fine with pornography, we have no problem with abortion, you would know how you would respond. And I dare say most of you would say, I'm not going to be a part of a church like that. That's sin. That's wrong. You know what else the Bible calls sin? Anger and bitterness towards one another. Division and disunity within the body. Gossip, slander, malice. It is sin to look at the body given to you with anything other than love. How many of us are fine being part of a church where gossip is... Uh, it's just conversation. Come on. Calm down. That's not really sin. It's not sin like that's sin. I'm okay if our church has gossip. I'm okay if our church has division. I'm okay if our church has disunity. I'm okay if our church has bitterness. That's sin. The church has created a sliding scale of sin because we cease to think of sin seriously. We treat sin like a diet. Oh, I fell off the wagon. All right, that's all. I'll just call it a cheat day. Ah, you know what? I'll, I'll give it a cheat weekend. Monday I'll, get back on, Monday, I'll get back on track. But I'll give myself two days to just kind of cheat on this diet of sin. We must understand that sin is a poison that will kill us. That will kill everything that has been given to us. Sin will destroy your marriage. Sin will destroy your family. Sin will destroy your relationship with your children, with your siblings, with your parents. Sin will destroy a church. Sin is not a diet that you get to cheat on. Sin is a poison that must be loathed with everything that is within us. And when we consider sin, when we consider anything other than the perfect holiness of God, how does God respond to sin? If you look at Ephesians 4, 
Ephesians 4 is a section where Paul is writing to the church and he lays out this new standard of life they have been called to. He says it opens up with, I urge you, or I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul is introducing this section with, what we're about to talk about is the manner of calling that you have been called to. This is how you are to live in light of your calling to follow Jesus. And he goes on to lay out, he talks about with humility, with gentle humility. We're okay with the sin of pride in our lives. We're okay with the sin of arrogance in our churches. That's not, come on, Sam, that's not really sin like that other stuff is sin. Paul says humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That sentence has been tragically absent in the American church in so many ways for far too long. Eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Bearing with one another in love. There is one body and one spirit. I mean, Paul lays out how we are to live. And how does he conclude this section? He lays out and he goes on. He ta- I mean, read Ephesians 4. That's not part of your weekly homework, but I'm adding it. Read Ephesians 4. And he lays out, this is how you are to live. And when you do not, when there is sin, this is what the result is in verse 30. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sin grieves God. And that word for grief, lupeo, it is deep emotional pain. This is not grief like, oh man, I thought wits closed at 10, they close at 9. That's not grief. That's not what sin does to God. Lupeo, this is deep, visceral pain that tears at the heart of the Lord. This is how God responds to the sin in our lives with sorrow that we can't even wrap our minds around. And if we do not learn to look at sin in our own lives with that same deep emotional pain and sorrow, then I really don't think we'll be bothered by it. If I view my sin as, oh, I messed up, that's all right, it'll all be okay. I'll get back on track tomorrow, I'll fix it later. But it doesn't cause this deep grief and intense. And I'm not talking about judging the sin of others. I'm not talking about judging the sin of our nation. I'm talking about judging the sin of ourselves. This is what Paul was writing. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, you do not grieve the Holy Spirit. If we are not grieved by sin, if we do not hate sin, I honestly don't know if we'll do anything about it. But this is how the Bible sets up sin. This is how God responds to sin. And so if you have the holiness of God on one side, and you have sin that deeply grieves the Father, that causes intense suffering and emotional pain to the heart of the Lord, then what is the response? What did John the Baptist teach and preach and declare? What did Jesus talk about? What does Paul talk about? What does the church in Acts continue to talk about? Repentance. Repentance, repentance, repentance. It must define the life of the believer. Acts 2.38 Peter has just presented Jesus to the crowds listening in Acts 2 and they say, what must we do 
And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. Recognizing that we are sinners. Confessing our sin. Seeking the Lord's forgiveness. When we talk about this idea of transforming from sin to the holiness of God, make no mistake, God does the transforming. God does the change. I cannot change my heart. I cannot change your heart. If I called all the elders together and we locked arms and we went, we could not make this church any holier. God does the transformation. But it is not a passive role that we take in this. We are not meant to be passive in this life, just sitting back without changing our behavior, without changing our attitude, without changing our approach, and just kind of hope, well, maybe things will miraculously switch tomorrow. I'm going to do all the same things. I'm going to live in the exact same way, and maybe things will just, maybe a switch will click, and then it'll all be okay. God does the transformation, but we are called to have an active role in this, and it's repentance. That's what our activity looks like. We've talked about repentance three times already in the life of Christ because it is such a central theme to the gospel. And in past sermons, if you recall, I quoted a commentary that defined repentance as a radical turning from sin that inevitably becomes manifest in the fruit of righteousness. Keep in mind the verses that we keep that definition in mind. A radical turning from sin, so you have action, a radical turning from sin that inevitably becomes manifest in the fruits of righteousness. Keep that definition in mind as we continue to look at these scripture verses, starting with Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance ought to lead to change. Repentance is not a feeling of guilt. It's not I feel badly about this, so then I'm kind of doing okay. Because that's what we use. See, we use our feelings to justify our actions. Well, I, you know... I feel badly every time I engage with pornography, so that's okay because I at least, in my heart, I feel badly about it. Well, I feel badly when I blow up in anger, so that's okay because I at least, there's that, there's that element of conviction and I, I feel badly about my anger. I feel badly about my sin, so it's okay that I keep engaging in it without actually changing anything because I've got that feeling of regret. That's not repentance. If you think that that's what repentance is, you've been lied to, I'm sorry. Repentance is action. It's turning from sin. It's seeking the Lord. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what's, what's a way to approach this? As we consider repentance in our own lives. Where's Phil? There's Phil. Phil is a diagnostic radiologist. I didn't know the word diagnostic was part of his title. I learned that this week. Phil, I'm going to ask you a question. As a diagnostic radiologist, you get a scan across your desk, right? You, you get a scan that comes over. Is it helpful if you send back, yeah, there's something wrong in the upper half of his body? Does that benefit anyone? No. Is it helpful if you say, yeah, right there in that part of his lung, there's a spot, go after that. Yep, right there on the heart, right there, go after that. Is that helpful? In general, when you have a problem, when you take your car to the mechanics, Hey, it's making a funny sound. There's smoke coming from under the engine, and they call you back. Yeah, there's a problem in the front half of your car somewhere. Yeah, fantastic. That's why I brought it in. Is it helpful to remain vague? No. You got to get specific. You got to go to the heart of things. And we see this when we consider the idea of repentance. And if you thought the first half wasn't fun, buckle up. Because this is when Jesus starts talking about repentance in the church. 
Let's look at Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation 1, Jesus appears to John, and Jesus says to John, He says, write a letter to seven churches. And two of them are doing it right. Jesus has no rebuke or reprimand for two of the churches. But five of the churches that Jesus instructs John to write letters to, He lays out specifically what these churches need to repent of. This was a brutal week prepping this. Because every single time I opened Revelation 2 and 3, and in this moment, I am 100% convinced that the section heading could be to the church in America. Read through this. Before we start pointing fingers at the world around us who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, these are Jesus' words to His bride, His body, the church. To the church in Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. There's that intellectual, emotional. When we talked about the idea of repentance is not just feeling. There's action. What does Jesus say? He says, remember and repent and do the works you did at first. There's the turning from sin to the holiness of God inherent in the command of repentance that Jesus gives the church of Ephesus. What happens if you don't? If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To the church in Pergamum, Smyrna gets it right. Jesus doesn't have a rebuke for Smyrna. To the church in Pergamum, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war with the sword of my mouth against them. To the church in Theotira, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Oh good, that's just her. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. To the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. There is action in repentance that Jesus calls these churches to. Philadelphia gets it right. No repentance warning there. And then finally, the church in Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Can you imagine receiving that from Jesus to send to a church? You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus goes on to say, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous, there is action, and repent. 
in case some of those phrases or words were unfamiliar to us, let's look at what Jesus was calling the churches to repent of. And you tell me, I mean, I... This was such a hard week. This could be the church in America. You tell me that just like Ephesus, the church in America, the American Christians, me, you, I am talking to you specifically. You tell me that we, just like the church in Ephesus, don't need to repent from our passion and fervor for Christ growing cold. This is what Jesus calls out Ephesus for. He says, you have fallen away from your first love. You have forgotten it. You have abandoned it. Do what you used to do. You tell me that the American church doesn't need to repent from apathy and stagnation. Is your personal passion cold for Jesus? If so, you need to repent. Pergamum. What do they need to repent of? What is Jesus says, I have this against you. Not I'm kind of annoyed by this. Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate false teachings because it's easier that way. You tell me that the American church doesn't need to repent from tolerating false teachers and false teaching. Theoretira, they also tolerate false teaching, which Jesus goes on to explain is now causing division and disunity within your body because you are allowing false teachers to remain in the body instead of removing them. And now the church as a whole is being affected and driven apart because you have a tolerance for false teachings. You need to repent. Tell me that Revelation 2 and 3 couldn't be written to the American church today. Sardis, dead faith and lack of deeds. Repent. Philadelphia, they're good. Laodicea, oh my goodness. In case the first four didn't convince you, Laodicea needed to repent from a belief that they were self-sufficient, an obsession with materialism, and lukewarm apathetic faith that served no purpose in the lives of those around them. See, that's one of the common misconceptions about Laodicea. A quick Bible history moment. We're going to pause this, step aside. So a lot of, one, of the, one of the tragic misteachings of this verse is, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out. And so people say, oh, well, Jesus either wants you hot or cold. He either wants you all in or all out. No, Jesus wants you all in. See, Laodicea was situated between two towns, Heropolis and Colossae. And one of those towns had hot springs that everyone in the region went to for bathing and for medicinal purposes. And one of those towns in the region had cold springs only that everybody went to for their drinking water and their cooking water because it was more pure and it was better. So Jesus is not saying, I want you all in, and if you can't be all in, then I you know, just don't even bother trying. He's saying, no, I, I want you to serve a purpose. The hot water around the Laodiceans served a purpose. The cold water around the Laodiceans served a purpose. You, you serve no purpose, church in Laodicea. You believe you are self-sufficient. You are trying to do things on your own. You think you don't need me. You are obsessed with the materialism of this faith and of your own lives. You have no purpose in the lives of those around you. You need to repent. I mean, this is the church in America. Apathy. Pointlessness. Going through the motions, believing we're self-sufficient. This is the church in America. 
we have to be willing to look at our own lives and say, is this written to me today? Well, yeah, but only one of those things. I mean, I'm doing well. Four out of five. No! Repent. Sin is sin. Repent. This is the response to the holiness of God. We talk about wanting to see the world change. We talk about the problems in our culture around us. Where does change actually begin? What does God say? 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repentance. There's humility. There's confession. There's, rec- there's the humility. Humble themselves. Recognizing who we are in light of the holiness of God. If my people humble themselves, if my people pray and seek my face, there's confession, there's recognizing, Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. I am not. I humble myself. I pray. I seek your face. And I turn from my wicked ways. There's action and repentance. What does God say? If my people who are called by my name do these things, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We are so obsessed with wanting the world around us to change that we have tolerated an American church that looks far more like the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis and Laodicea. We look at our own lives and we say, okay, well, my sin isn't as bad as their sin, so I'm doing all right. Those sinners need to repent. But me, I'm good. What if Jesus told John to write a letter to our church? Community Bible Church. Make it personal. What if Jesus told John to write a letter to you? Jesus said, John, write, write Sam a letter. I have this against him that he needs to repent from. What would that letter say? So this week, we didn't read all of Revelation 1 through 3, but read Revelation 1 through 3 this week. And ask yourself that question. If Jesus told John to write you a letter of reprimand, What would Jesus say you need to repent from? And then the prayer is simple, Lord, I repent. Teach me how to turn from this. Teach me how to abandon this. Teach me to have nothing to do with this. I repent. We talked about freedom from the the penalty and the power of sin, and that's the beautiful part of the gospel, is that we are promised forgiveness. In God's word, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. The Bible also says, confess your sins to one another. The worship team is going to come, and we're going to do a closing song. But don't sing along. We are in so desperate need of repentance. If last year, if the first two weeks, what are we, ten days in? I mean, if we've learned anything in the last six, seven, eight, nine months, the last week, the American church is in desperate, desperate need of repentance.
I am personally in desperate need of repentance. You are in desperate need of repentance. 